everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of charts at Billboard. And joining me is Billboard's deputy editor, digital, Katie Atkinson. Aloha, Katie. Oh, aloha, Keith. <laughs> it's like... We're on location in Hawaii. We're we're actually in Honolulu. (laughs) We haven't told you, but we're actually there right now. Um, Well, as always, the Billboard Pop Shop podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got news about the music nominees at the Golden Globes. Nick Jonas. Nick Jonas. Mariah. Mariah. Mary J. Blige. Yes. Uh, how Queens of the Stone Age frontman Josh Homme was caught on video kicking a photographer during a concert over the weekend. Not cool. And how pop stars aplenty are reacting to a viral video of a bullied little boy. Hmm. Yeah. And we've got chart updates about U2 scoring its eighth number one album on the Billboard 200. Ed Sheeran and Beyonce topping the Billboard Hot 100 with Perfect, and how Sheeran is also our top artist of the year, as we just released our 2017 year-end charts. Plus, we've got an interview with the director of one of the most critically acclaimed films of the year, Call Me By Your Name, which just received three Golden Globe nominations, including Best Motion Picture Drama. We spoke to Luca Guadagnino about the film's music, which includes two new songs written specifically for the movie by Sufjan Stevens, as well as why he selected some of the other tunes we hear in the movie, including the 80s chestnut Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs. So stick around for that later on. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode and give us a rating or review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So let's jump right into some of the biggest headlines on Billboard.com. Nominations for the 75th Annual Golden Globe Awards came out on Monday, and a lot of pop shop favorites were in the mix. Nick Jonas was nominated for the song Home. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast for the animated film Ferdinand, alongside songwriters Justin Tranter. Friend of the podcast. <laughs> and Nick Monson. Soon, eventually, yeah. I'm sure, a friend of the podcast. Nick, whenever you want to stop by. Let us know. <laughs> in the best original song from a motion picture category. Uh, Mariah Carey was also nominated for her title track for the animated film The Star. Meanwhile, Mary J. Blige got a double nod thanks to her role in Mudbound, which scored her a Best Supporting Actress nomination, and her song Mighty River from the film, written with Raphael Sadiq and Tora Stinson, was also nominated for Original Song. Hmm. Across all categories, The Shape of Water and HBO's Big Little Lies lead the way. For all the um, nominees, of course, you can head to Billboard.com, including Call Me By Your Name, which we'll talk more about later. Hmm. Um, Before you move on. Yes. uh, Have you seen The Shape of Water yet? No. Okay, so Guillermo del Toro Toro directed it. Yes. He also did Pan's Labyrinth. Yes. Now, I remember I saw Pan's Labyrinth Mm -hmm. in the theater, Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know much about it. But it was advertised as like, you know, an enchanting fairy tale. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then I went and saw it. And I'm like, no, my God, not quite an enchanting fairy tale. Have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? I haven't, but I know, yeah. Whoa, it's a lot. Yeah. So 
I'm kind of afraid of seeing this because I'm like, is this going to be a bait and switch? Because I think they've actually used the phrase enchanting fairy tale yeah, to describe the shape of water. I think it's another creep show. Okay. <laughs> for sure. It's like about like some sort of literal. But a beautiful creep show. Swamp thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I really don't know like anything about it, but it also seems like Guillermo del Toro comes with that, like, you mm-hmm. know, that aesthetic. Yes. There we go. That aesthetic. Uh, oh, yeah. So, like I said, anyway. head to Billboard.com for all the nominees, um, and the Globes telecast will air on Sunday, January 7th. That seems very soon. It's like a month away. <laughs> it's less than a month less away. Less than a month. Yeah. And less golden news. Yeah. Over the weekend, Queens of the Stone Age frontman Josh Homme was caught on video kicking a photographer during the K-Rock Almost Acoustic acoustic Christmas show you know, as one in does. L.A. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't seen this video, um, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what happened. Uh, When the news initially broke, Josh had his own version of events saying it was accidental. He gets real worked up on stage and he kicks things, kicks equipment, and just happened to kick a camera. But um, he actually took full responsibility in a new apology video that he posted on Sunday saying, I don't have any excuse or reason to justify what I did. I was a total dick. And I'm truly sorry, and I hope you're okay. Um, He was addressing the photographer, Chelsea Lauren, who wrote all about the incident on Instagram, if you want to hear her version of events, um, sharing that she went to the hospital Saturday night to treat her sore neck and bruised eyebrow after after the the kick. Look forward to that lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, he ended the video with, like, I understand you need to do whatever you need to do, (laughs) which is very much like, I understand you're probably going to sue me, but I'm sorry. Me and and my attorneys welcome the lawsuit that you're about to file. Um, And finally, uh, Hollywood this weekend rallied around Keaton Jones, a Tennessee student whose Facebook video addressing the bullies at his school went viral over the weekend. In the clip, he asks... Just out of curiosity, why do they bully? What's the point of it? Why do you find joy in taking innocent people and finding a way to be mean to them? It's not okay. Dozens of celebrities took to social media to back Keaton up, including Katy Perry, who told her followers to be kind to one another, Cardi B, who urged parents to teach your kids not to be bullies, and Demi Lovato, who let Keaton know he's not alone. Keaton has also gotten some pretty big invitations following the video, including Zed, who offered an all-expenses-paid trip to any of his concerts. Sure. And Chris Evans invited the boy to the next Avengers premiere. Captain America inviting you. Exactly. Not, not so bad. Now, of course, with any of these viral stories, you know, There's, people start digging around. Turns and out. Maybe finding some, you know, some unsavory things. And so there, people are questioning uh, the motives of the mom involved in this now, and they say that she's posted some pretty hateful stuff on Facebook. Uh, other people are saying that the account that is attributed to her might be fake. So, like, I don't want to call this woman out if it's not true. Um, but I think that everyone rallying around to support this little boy, there's nothing wrong with that, no matter what the deal with the mom is. So, oh, Unless, like, the mom put him up to this. Well, I mean, he she filmed and posted the video. Well, there you go. Oh, but, but, I mean, it was a very sincere video. I feel like the boy, like, that story still is pure and innocent. Until you've heard otherwise. Just maybe, you know, don't donate to the GoFundMe just yet. <laughs> just wait a hot second he, on that. Had, there's a GoFundMe? Somebody else set it up for him. The, <laughs> perhaps a mother. For, yeah, maybe. Under it. <laughs> Oh, boy. This is going to be one of those things where it's like, you know, as you peel back the, the layers, layers, suddenly, mm, hopefully, it's uh, something pure and good. But uh, in this world, 
You never know. Anything is possible. <laughs> well, let's run the Billboard chart numbers and do the chart chat. Here are three of the biggest headlines on the charts. Number one, or number two, U2, <laughs> get it? A.O. Uh, lands its eighth number one album on the Billboard 200. Number two, Ed Sheeran and Beyonce make a perfect pair at the top of the Billboard Hot 100. See what I did there? <laughs> and number three, wait, we've got more Sheeran news. He not only celebrates his second number one on the Hot 100, but he also is our top artist of the year. He leads our 2017 year-end charts, which are all available right now on Billboard.com. Okay, first up, U2. The band debuts at number one on the Billboard 200 with its latest release, Songs of Experience. Remarkably, the band is now the only group with number ones in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and 2010s. The only other acts with the number one in each of those decades are Janet Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, and Barbara Streisand. Uh, U2's album <laughs> debuts at number one with 186,000 equivalent album units earned in the week ending December 7th, according to Nielsen Music. And of that sum, 180,000 were in traditional album sales. And yes, like so many other albums, U2 was helped out by a concert ticket album sale promotion redemption program thingy uh, <laughs> in association with their upcoming experience plus innocence tour which begins next may and the tour is named that way because the songs of experience album is a companion piece slash sequel to the songs of innocence album that came out a few years ago that the everyone infamous. has the infamous songs of innocence album that every single person with an apple account still probably has right now <laughs> um also notably, among all acts with the most number ones in the history of the Billboard 200 chart, U2 is now tied with Kenny Chesney and Madonna for the sixth most leaders, and the third most among groups. Ahead of the three of them are The Beatles with a record 19 number one albums, Jay-Z with 14, Bruce Springsteen and Barbra Streisand each with 11, Elvis Presley with 10, and Garth Brooks and the Rolling Stones who each have nine. Next up, Ed Sheeran gets a little, well, a lot of help from Beyonce <laughs> as his new remix of Perfect with new vocals by the diva jumps to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It's the second leader for Sheeran and the sixth solo chart topper for Beyonce. You know, she hasn't actually been number one, I think, since Single Ladies. I just saw that it was, I, I don't want to say it wrong, but I thought it was like 2008 or nine. Yeah, it was, it, it was nine years ago. Yeah. So it would have been 2008. Yep. Yeah. Which is a very long time ago. Yes. She's been focused on dropping surprise albums, like number one. <laughs> She's still been doing okay, though. She's fine. <laughs> She's fine. Um, as Hot 100 chart manager Gary Trust notes in his online story, because the duet version accounts for 63% of the song's total sales for the week, Beyonce has been added on the Hot 100 mm. and all of our related charts as a co-lead artist on Perfect. It's actually billed as, I think... Uh, Ed Sheeran duet with Beyonce, mm. uh, which is an interesting phrasing instead of Ed Sheeran ampersand Beyonce mm -hmm. or just Ed Sheeran and we don't know why people do these <laughs> things. Um, for chart purposes, both versions of Perfect, the original version that's just Ed by himself, along with the Beyonce version, are merged together and contribute to the song's singular listing on the Hot 100. The song actually sold a total of 181,000 downloads in the week ending December 7th, according to Nielsen which is up 202% compared to the previous week. It also rises 11 to 3 on streaming songs with nearly 35 million in streams, which is up 87%. And on the radio songs chart, 
it goes four to three with 102 million in audience, up 14% for the week ending December 10th. We actually caught up with Sheeran last week on December 8th backstage at the Jingle Ball. I didn't catch up with him. Our, <laughs> our pal Kevin Kinney did, who does Billboard News. Um, and they were at the Jingle Ball concert in New York. And uh, at the time, Kevin told Ed that it looked like he was going to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Of course, we didn't know for sure, but it seemed like it was a sure thing at the time. And Sheeran, in response, said, quote, it's really effing cool to be honest and then he but not censored but yeah but it's not censored (laughs) in that version i don't know why i'm censoring myself but i am um he also said that and he had sort of an interesting sort of businessy point he said that it's you know it's so hard to kind of kind of have a campaign around an album sometimes because albums kind of just shoot up the chart and then they go down the chart and especially with singles um they have they all sort of have this short lifespan Mm. and and they were trying to figure out a way to kind of boost you know perfect and give it sort of a kind of a a new life oh they figured it out they figured it out Uh, that's what happens (laughs) turns out the answer is beyonce turns out the answer is beyonce as we've learned this year with mi gente with willie william and j balvin and beyonce Mm. that helps too um and lastly well we're not done with ed yet folks Mm -hmm. he's also our top artist of the year and uh, his first number one Hot 100 hit, Shape of You, has been crowned as our year-end Hot 100 number one single. Ed is only the second male British artist to be our year-end artist of the year, following George Michael in 1988. Uh, point of note, we started our combined top artist category in 1981. So this isn't like back into the 50s. It's like, well, no, since 1981, which is still a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Kendrick Lamar's Damn is our top Billboard 200 album, which is the first rap set to be the year's biggest album since 2005, when 50 Cent's The Massacre was tops, uh, which is kind of surprising, I suppose. But I guess in that interim, we've had a bunch of Taylor Swift albums and Adele albums and Frozen things and High School Musical. We've also had made uh, massive Drake albums and Jay-Z albums. And... Yeah, I, it's always the trick of when you release albums. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with our chart year the way it is, our chart year actually runs from December, th- it, this year's chart year, the 2017 chart year, and you can read this all online, runs from our charts dated December 3rd, 2016 mm-hmm. through November 25th, 2017 and in effect that is really because our charts are dated like a week and a half of in advance ahead of when they're actually compiled right so it's more like a mid-november to Mm -hmm. Mm mid-november range so that's why you know because of when something comes out it can sort of kind of do really well on a calendar year but then do weirdly on our year-end charts yeah yeah um so that's sometimes some of the explanation behind this but anyway Mm -hmm. All of our year-end charts have been posted to Billboard's websites, and there are so many to sift through. Yes. Trust me, I know. I work in the charts department. From pop to reggae, rap to country, Latin to new age, vinyl albums to digital albums, streaming songs to bluegrass albums. We've got it all. So go check them all out. And now it is time for our interview with Luca Guadagnino, the director of the film Call Me By Your Name. Now, a couple weeks ago on the show, you heard me gush about the film yes. and its gorgeous soundtrack. And if you shared novice with Keith, you would also hear him gush about the film. <laughs> Katie is thrilled that we're finally making this happen. Um, at the time, I joked about how I was thinking about having a podcast focused around the film and its music. And, well, here we are. 
And because we're speaking with a film director specifically about a movie he directed and its use of music, we feel compelled to give you a little more context uh, to our interview. Yeah, because especially when I jump into the interview and start referencing character names, which you're not going to be familiar with, yeah. it would make sense. But, so, but get familiar. But get familiar. <laughs> Go see the movie. Yeah. If you're in New York or L.A. right now. Um, more about that in a second. So anyway, the movie stars Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet, who both just earned Golden Globe nominations for their performances in the film. And the movie is actually set in northern Italy in 1983. The story follows Chalamet's character Elio, who is a super smart 17-year-old son of a professor and can play the the PR, that's a new (laughs) instrument, the piano, guitar, knows tons of classical music, can play it on the piano and guitar, and he can speak three languages, at least three. For all we know, there's a fourth one that that he didn't share with us. (laughs) One day... His dad's annual summer intern, they get a different intern every year, arrives in the form of Oliver, played by Hammer, a graduate student working on his doctorate. Elio falls for Oliver, and as the film's press notes say, they, quote, discover a summer that will alter their lives forever. Singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens wrote two new songs specifically for the film, in addition to providing a new remix of one of his older songs. Also, the movie includes a very memorable placing of the early 80s song Love My Way by the Psychedelic Furs, as well as then-contemporary pop hits in Italy, and a carefully selected, or actually, and many carefully selected <laughs> pieces one. of classical music that we hear and sometimes see performed in the movie. Uh, in our chat with uh, Guadagnino, he talks about how Stevens and his music was important for the film, how they selected some of the pop tunes heard in the movie, Uh, It's very detailed, and I was sort of amazed by it. But then I was like, wait, that's what you should be doing. But still, it's pretty cool to hear what he explains. Mm -hmm. Trust me. Um, His love of the psychedelic furs. He's a huge fan of the band. And even what Elio's character was listening to on his oft-scene Walkman when it wasn't playing classical tunes. Hmm. So, here's our chat with Luca Guadagnino. Welcome to the Billboard Pop Shop Podcast, Luca Guadagnino. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, I'm good. Um, first off, I want to say that I have seen Call Me By Your Name three times. Thank you. And it, the movie stays with me and haunts me, and the music does too. And I want to specifically talk about how I know that you're such a music fan yourself. I'm, I'm correct in thinking that, right? Uh, well, I, I I love music for sure. I am not a great. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a knowledge, a level of knowledge in music that I wish I had. Okay. But I love music for sure. And you picked. I think you picked all the songs that we hear in the film, or most of them. Sure. I, I the the way we work it on the soundtrack of this movie, it's almost the same as always with me. I work uh, very hand in hand with my editor Walter Fasano. And we know each other since 25 years. I've been working together since 25 years. And we share many, many common grounds in terms of what we like, in terms of music for the films we do. He's, he's the knowledgeable person mm. about music. Now, and in the last three movies, or four probably, I worked with Robin Erdang as our music supervisor. Yes. And, uh, and the way this movie has, was made, there were pieces of music that I knew I wanted to hear in the film. Particularly, I was really in the, in the track of uh, choosing some of the piano pieces that uh, were, in a way, commentary to the film. Mm-hmm. In particular, Alleluia Junction by John Adams that opens the film. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, uh, or uh, the Ma Mère Loire by Ravel. 
um, there are pieces of music that are in the script because Elio plays them, right. like Bach. Um, and then we started to think of what kind of music Elio, being a, a, an, a young pianist in the making, would have gotten in his imagery. And uh, so we added other pieces, including like a piece by, by Sakamoto called Germination mm-hmm. uh, from the soundtrack of uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Then there was the sound of the 80s, music that was coming off of the radios. Yeah, in cont- the contemporary p- hits in 1983 in Italy, in Italy. yeah. So we made a very thoughtful to- to- research. We, 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 we investigated which were the heat of the summer. Yeah. And, and not only that, but of course you have to think of what were the songs that were hit the summers before. And right. then we started to think how radios in that particular region of Italy would have programmed those pieces of music. Wow, that's so specific. at what time of the day that song could have been played. Oh, you're kidding. So we worked very methodically in that direction. So I can tell you that the music you hear coming from radio and the music that the kids listen to and the music in the, in the, in the, in, in, in the discotheque, it's so philologically chosen. Wow. That is very precise and yet all the music we put its songs and pieces that we me and Walter really loved right at the time then we have the psychedelic first that was in the script It's a name. It's so, like, so, like James, so James Ivory put that into the script? I put that you, into the Because you, you love that song. I read that you, you yeah, loved that I song when you were a teenager. First, I, I mean, Heaven and uh, Pretty Pink and, 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 and this one, uh, Love My Way. They are, they, those are hymns for a generation. And I thought like Oliver in his uh, search for himself, when he listened to the song, is getting completely into his own world. And then... Uh, I I wanted to work on a contribution from the standpoint of music that could give the film a precise identity that was going to go beyond the uh, philologic aspect of the 80s and the commentary music of the, the classical music. Right. And that's why I was seeking for a voice to add itself to the voices of the film played by the characters, by the actors playing the characters. And that's when I thought of Sufjan Stevens. Have you always been a fan of his? I, I mean, since I got to be knowledgeable about right. him, I be, I've been, yes. Why was, he, why was his voice and his sort of style of music important for the film? Because I wanted to have a sort of narrator mm-hmm. like, without having a normal narrator. It's sort, of, it's sort of like you're hearing Elio's internal monologue in a way when you hear his music. And also the movie internal monologue in a way. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, um, what Sufjan comes with is three things. First, the lyrics he writes are incredibly evocative, very, very sharp, and they are, in a way, capable of evoking images that are not necessarily the same for everybody. So this, in a way, makes it universal. They're very sort of vague and oblique in a way where yeah. yeah the music is pure yeah. and evocative and uh, sorry and 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 poetic and 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 simple and those were qualities i was seeking for the film and the voice is like crystal yeah his voice is so angelic in a way 
So the combination of these three things was fantastic. When you, because you approached him to write one song and he ended up giving you two. And then he also adapted the futile devices yes. from uh, the Age of Odds in, for piano. When, when he was writing the music, which was, he wrote the music before the film was shot. He sent us the music, uh, I would say, a week into the shooting. Oh, we and we were shocked. Now, what did he have when to he what did he have to go by to do the music? Was it just the script and the book, or script, did script book conversation? Did you send him any imagery or photos of the villa? I don't or, think so. No. And when you told him, or when you asked him, when you talked to him to write music, did you say that you wanted it for a specific scene, or did you just say, "Be inspired, and we'll put it into the movie somewhere"? Be inspired, really. So when you first got it, you got the songs back. Did you immediately know where you were going to put them into the film? Because the, the scenes that they are in, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's listening, they are very important scenes. Did you immediately know, aha, I know where these songs will go in the film? I, once I listened to them, Visions of Gideon, mm-hmm. I immediately detected that that was going to be the last song in the film. Yeah. Visions of Gideon, Visions of Gideon, Visions of Gideon. Mysteries of Love, Mystery of Love. We talked with Walter for briefly, my editor, and we identified it with the moment in which they go hiking. For Futile Device, that was more in the, mo- in the work. Yeah. But when we watched the film, when we watched the rushes of the scene in which Elio is thinking, and he's uh, melancholically thinking of Oliver, that is when we gripped in us the idea that that was the right place. Right. Um, when, when you first got the songs back, well, you know, a week into the shooting, I read that you had played them for Army and Timothy. You, you brought them in and sat them down and played them the songs. How did they react when they first heard the music? Well, we were in our li- in my living room. It was me, Walter, and Army and Timothy. And I remember it was blissfulness and emotion. And it was a great moment because we, we were very united already, but it's something you can't describe in a way because you know when you do a movie you can do a movie as a job uh, you can do a movie as a piece of life and we were doing a movie that was a piece of life of our lives intertwined and yeah. then we heard this music and the, 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 the depths of our commitment to the movie I think grew significantly more and we became enveloped into this magic we kept listening to the songs for like an afternoon like listening <laughs> amazing like the rest of us now basically because so we just keep putting the soundtrack on, on loop good. Um, you mentioned Love My Way before, and I want to go back to something that you said where I think you were referencing something that Oliver hears in the song. And when I listen to the lyrics to the song, they're in a way kind of like Sufian's lyrics where you don't know exactly what they're singing about, but you can interpret it. You in mean a certain uh, the psychedelic first? Yes, the psychedelic first track, because they're, they're singing about, you know, a, sort of a different kind of love, perhaps, or something where people aren't accepting of that and they'll be run out of town, kind of, that vibe. And I thought I thought that was interesting that Oliver reacted that way. Was that the intention for us to, the audience, to hear the lyrics and think of them in relation to Oliver? Not to get too analytical, but that's what I was thinking because I heard the lyrics and I thought of it that yeah, way. Yeah, I think so. I think you're, I agree with you because, like, 
<coughs> there are pieces of music that uh, signifies for us in our life a memory, a moment, or an aim. And in that case, it's an aim. It's both memory and aim. Probably uh, Oliver has listened to the song before. Also in the movie, we see Elio play a number of classical pieces. Uh, like, th- like I, th- I want to say three different pieces on the piano. And then one of those pieces also he plays on the guitar a little bit. Um, I was surprised that none of those performances were actually on the soundtrack. There are, those pieces of music are on the soundtrack, but not as the, performed by Timothy. Yeah. Um, was that? Did you ever consider putting those performances by Timothy onto the album? No, because you know when you shoot a movie, you shoot the music that you need for the scene. Right. You need a, mu- a minute. You don't need like five. Five minutes. So it would have been just very small snippets. Yeah, it would have been strange. Well, I have an amazing idea. L- hear me out. So uh, Record Store Day is this uh, celebration of vinyl that happens every year. I think it's in like April or May. And they release a lot of limited edition vinyl. Perhaps Sony can release a vinyl picture disc of, I'd love to. of Timothy's performances. I'd love to. And uh, a collector's item. It'll be beautiful. It's, we can make that happen. It's a good idea. It's I a, will try to make it happen. But, but, I will talk to Carmelo Pirone, which is marketing at Sony's Classics. He's a great guy. We can make this happen. Yeah. I, I promise. Um, I also want to ask about uh, Elio listens to his Walkman throughout the film because he's transcribing uh, classical music. But I'm wondering, you know, as a 17-year-old who was going to discotheques and dancing and as a teenager, he was probably listening to other music too. This is kind of a difficult question, but what do you think, aside from classical, was Elio listening to on his Walkman? Like, was he listening to pop music? Was he listening... He definitely listened to the Talking Heads. Yeah, because he had it on the wall. He He had a T-shirt. He had a T-shirt. He may listen to... Nico in the Velvet Underground. He may have listened to Bowie. Yeah. He was, do you, you, I, I would imagine that his taste in music was probably very eclectic and alternative and worldly. Yeah, he also, worldly. also listened to Franco Battiato, the music uh, that he listened when he wanks with a peach. Oh, true. True. You know Franco Battiato? I'm not familiar, though. No. Fantastic, fantastic musician. And uh, that would have been contemporary of the time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a big Italian sort of pop star, I suppose? Yeah, it's a pop star, but not pop-pop. Uh, it's like pop-alternative. Uh, Got it. Um, alternative pop. Um, people have been talking, and I'm one of those people. I will keep talking about it, but you've mentioned something about a sequel. Yeah. The potential to maybe do it. And I would love five sequels. I would love ten. I, I would like the six-hour version of Call Me By Your Name where I just luxuriate in bike rides in northern Italy. It, is, is a sequel really, like, is there a script or is it just an idea right now? Embracing ideas in my mind. Right. And once I'm going to have the time to rest and be by myself in a <laughs> hotel room in Munich where I love to be, I will start to, scry- to write a plot. I think, the, I think if people haven't read the book, because I read the book earlier this year, if people haven't read the book, I think they'll be very satisfied with where the film ends um, because the, fi- the book continues the story after the, where we see the film end. And I think the film gives you a different kind of hope for their lives uh, instead of what we get from the book. So yeah. now, you have to, now people listening have to go, list, go read the book to find out what happens next. Which is something that we will take in consideration for the sequels, but not entirely. Is it a video? 
Thank you again to Luca Guadagnino for chatting with me, and congratulations on all of the film's success. Call Me By Your Name is currently in limited release in New York and the Los Angeles area and expands to additional screens across the country over the next two weeks before eventually going nationwide in mid-January. Oh, man. I remember that struggle. I'm from Michigan. That was... I there was one theater in Michigan that would get anything good, and I would drive like an hour and a half to go see a movie. Sometimes, that's got to be. I, we're we're very spoiled. Yes, in L.A. and New York, because yes. we. I mean, we get everything generally first. Yes. Now that said, this film in particular was released in Europe in the U.K. first, so we were denied it by like a month right. before we even got it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, we the reason why a lot of these movies come out in New York and L.A. first is because they want to get them... Get the buzz going. Get the buzz going, especially for films that could be challenging to a mainstream mm-hmm. audience. I mean, this isn't The Avengers. Right. You know, this is like a small niche art house film. And you don't want to just blow it out into 2,000 screens, then have it flop. Yeah. And with this, I think they're doing it the right way. They're building buzz. Oh, and yeah. It's getting a bunch of awards notices, and it has a... 98% on Rotten Tomatoes as yeah. of our recording. So all things are pointing. The buzz, the buzz worked. The buzz is working. <laughs> and now it's time for the chart stat of the week. Uh, this week, 35 years ago, the psychedelic furs is Love My Way. Hey, have you heard of that one? <laughs> was enjoying a run on the Dance Club Songs chart on its way to becoming the band's first hit on the Billboard Hot 100 the following year. I felt it was important for me to have a chart set of the week that was kind of tied to the interview. This is actually perfect, yeah, though. Like sense. This is not a reach at all. No. It's even a nice round number, 35 years. Yeah, I know. If it wasn't, <laughs> I may have hesitated. Uh, Love My Way actually made its Billboard chart debut on our mainstream rock songs airplay chart, dated October 9th, 1982, peaking that same week at number 30. A week later, the song bowed on our Dance Club Songs chart and became the group's fourth top 40 dance hit a few weeks later, peaking at number 40. Dance clubs were very different back in the early 80s. They could play Psychedelic Furs and Madonna side by side. Oh, that's great. And, you know, all sorts of other fun disco stuff. Donna Summer and the, you know, Psychedelic Furs. I mean, Ed Sheeran's our Dance Club Songs artist. True. (laughs) It's amazing what remixes can do. Yes. Um, Well, Love My Way eventually hit the Hot 100 in March of 1983 and topped out at number 44 on the chart. So there you have it. 35 years ago this week, Love My Way was dancing up a storm on our Dance Club Songs chart. Okay. Have you seen Call Me By Your Name yet, Katie? I have not. Um, I've, I've seen it just three times. Uh, only. <laughs> only three times, which you heard me enthusiastically tell uh, Luca in our interview. Yes. And, and as our listeners know, I have a new baby, so I don't know the next time I'll get to a movie theater. <laughs> but I'll let you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good point. When do when do uh, young like when do moms with young ones actually ever get to see a movie? I mean, has I, that been like a discussion? Like, with I you to- and your I think friends? I told you there's like there's a uh, specific mom movie that you can bring kids to like and it, but only like infants. So you can bring them to like adult movies, but like as long as they're a year and under when they're not understanding. And that's the movie. usually like what like a Wednesday morning at nine. o'clock? Yeah, I went and saw uh, what's it called the Murder on the Orient Express. 
with uh, baby Calvin in tow. It's good that <laughs> it's good that baby Cal didn't see the murder on the yes, Orient exactly. Express. Yes, exactly. It's very traumatic. I mean, he, he won't know what's going on right now. <laughs> this week's movie is Disaster Artist, which just seems hilarious <laughs> for children. I really wish I could have gone to that, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> James Franco. Yeah. Uh, possibly semi-nude <laughs> what baby wouldn't be frightened shield by your that? eyes babies um <laughs> well okay um well hopefully you'll get to see more movies indeed uh you'll probably see a lot of movies on video yes over the holidays what song should we go out on oh, this man. week um any other good 1982 songs that was the year i was born and uh so me and the song have something in common 1982 this is something you would think i would know off the top of my head um, oh man, he's consulting the books. I'm consulting a book, <laughs> as one should. It's that important. Fred Bronson Billboard Guide. Dun 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 You can hear me flipping through. This is like I remember looking up one time. You know how they tell you like what song is number one on your birthday? I think it, I want to say it was like a Pat Benatar song. Well, Pat Benatar's never had a number one on the Hot 100, oh, okay. so that then wouldn't it wasn't have been it. Pat Benatar. Maybe it was Joan Jett you were thinking of. Maybe. Well, uh, among the big number one hits in 1982, there was I Love Rock and Roll by Joan oh, Jett. Maybe. Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie mm-hmm, Wonder. Mm-hmm. Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jay Giles Band Centerfold. Oh, I, I still love Jay Giles Band. Should we do Centerfold? Let's do that one. Okay. See you guys next time. Bye. My blood runs cold.